Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? I'm Seth Stevenson. Today on the show, we'll be talking about Bonobos, the menswear company. Joining us is CEO Mickey Onvall. In our conversation, Mickey talks about how an online retailer can still benefit from having brick-and-mortar stores, about a moment when the Bonobos brand became too bro-y for her taste, and about signing an endorsement deal with PGA golfer Justin Rose. After the break, Mickey Onvall, CEO of Bonobos. Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? I'm Seth Stevenson. Today, we'll be talking about Bonobos, the menswear company, and with me is CEO Mickey Onverall. Mickey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I know you came on board with Bonobos years after it began, but can you give us a sort of a bit of a history of the company? The history lesson. So it was founded by Andy Dunn and Brian Spaley back in 2007 um, when they were in school at Stanford. And Brian was a hockey player, and he had a real challenge finding pants that fit his large athletic hockey thighs. And so he went about trying to develop a pant that solved that very sort of basic problem. And then Andy's role in the story was really about finding a way to take those to market. So once they had the pants, they started selling them to their roommates and their friends at Stanford out the back of their car. And that was really the very beginnings and origins of Bonobos. And it's that part of our value proposition, great fitting pants that we kind of carry with us to the day. And and what was the innovation that allowed his thighs the proper... The room. Yes. Um, There's a couple of things. One is the curved waistband. So this actually came from women's wear. Um, But when you think about you put a belt around your waist and you've been wearing it for a while and then you take it off, it actually has a natural curve to it. And men's pants historically actually have a straight waistband. So the innovation of the original pants was this curved waistband, which meant that they just hugged your butt and your thighs sort of more closely. Um, And then as we've developed, we've continued to innovate on that fit to fit all kinds of different body sizes. I see. And And so, and if there is a a core customer, a core demographic, maybe then and now, what what would be the sort of unifying elements of that demographic? We... Think about it from an age perspective. It's 25 to 45. It's men who care about the way they look, but aren't necessarily sort of fashion and trend setters, so to speak. Um, slightly more affluent, educated. Um, the other thing that I would say is sort of a unifying principle is this idea of the engaged. So men who are really interested in the world around them, interested in the way they look, the way they present themselves, um, and things like that. And I've heard... Bonobos described as a, a digital pioneer. What, why, why, why did, how did it earn that accolade? What, what sort of digital pioneering did Bonobos do? So you may have heard the term digitally native vertical brand, DNVB. I um, have now. You have now. <laughs> uh, well, Bonobos was the first of those. So this was this idea of a direct-to-consumer brand that was born and lived entirely online. And is this, how, how is this similar to or different from when we talk about direct-to-consumer brands nowadays, things like Warby Parker, where you just buy it straight from their website. They're not, you know, in retailers. Is it like that? It's exactly the same. So it's a different name for similar thing. Yes. And we were sort of the pioneer part is because we were actually the first to do that. Um, 
we just coined the term DNVB. And I think as, over time, as more brands have followed the same model, it has been converted, so to speak, to DTC. To, to direct to consumer. Um, okay. And I, I remember at the beginning, when I first became aware of the Bonobos brand, one of the things that set it apart was it had these like bright linings on the back yes. pockets that would stick out. And that was one of the sort of the selling points. Is that still a selling point for the brand? Is that still something you do or not? It is still something we do. When we think about sort of the value proposition of the brand, we think about fit, which I already talked about. We talk about quality and style, and it's very often around those little winks. So we have a lot of brightly colored products, great prints, like a really bright, vibrant prints, and then those little winks, which could be everything from that pocket liner that you're talking about through to, you know, a little embroidery or the lining of a jacket. So it's still very much a part of the brand is that that joy, that fun and that whimsy alongside the fit. And you're sort of getting at this, uh, but how are some of the other ways that you differentiate Bonobos from the other menswear brands out there? What sets it apart? So apart from fit and the quality and the the color and the joy in the product, the other big piece is around service. So we've always really tried to differentiate ourselves from other apparel brands through our service. And that started online with what we call the Ninjas, who are our customer service reps who are sat in our head office in New York in the dojo. Um, And they're the people that really add the human element to the brand. So that's everything from helping someone find their fit to solving a problem or going above and beyond and getting a suit to someone in time for their wedding. So service lived originally through the ninjas. And as we've continued to build that part of our value proposition, that's what drove us to open what we call the guide shops. So we now have 63 guide shops across the country where a customer can go really get fit, They can get styled in the product from really great, knowledgeable guide shop assistants, and then they can, you know, go home and have it delivered to their home. So this is brick and mortar. You started out digital native on that, but now you've actually gone somewhat in reverse from the typical pattern where where you you went from digital (laughs) to having brick and mortar. So we've gone to brick and mortar with a twist is how I would describe it, because actually you cannot take your clothes home from our guide shops. Um, You actually, as I said, you come in, you get fit, you get styled, and then we send the product directly to your home, which actually has been really interesting because it's created a very different kind of personalized experience in the store that you can't actually get in a traditional retail store. And what? Tell me a little bit about the sort of costs and benefits of having. So you know, it's you're, you're paying rent now on, yes. on something. You've got more, you know, in-store employees. Um, is this marketing? Is this what is? What are the real benefits of of spending that money to have a physical presence? So I talk about it as experiential marketing on speed. That is to say that obviously it acts as a massive billboard. Someone can walk down the street and they can see the brand and they can see the product. Um, They can go into the store and experience the brand. And because they're interacting with a human being, they tend to spend more money, buy more clothes and come back more frequently to the brand because they've had such an amazing first time user experience. So it's incredibly cost effective marketing. If you were to just look at it through that lens, But I think the way we've made it even more cost effective is actually through the model itself. 
And what I mean by that is there's no inventory in the store. And that means a few things. That means a smaller store footprint, so lower rents than a traditional retailer. And it also means we get good deals because we can fit into those small leftover places that often happen, whether it's in a mall or on a high street. Um, We have less staff. We have no one who has to go back and forward to, you know, a back storeroom to, you know, fulfill whatever's on the shop floor. And it also means we don't have to have as much inventory. So we don't have to have one of every shape, size, color in every store to sell because we pull from a common inventory. So people can try on a black pair of our weekday warriors, figure out which is the right fit from them. But if they actually want it in blue, green or purple, they we can order that for them and we ship it straight to their home. And how big a component of your sales are, are those? What is it, 60 odd guide shops? About 30%. That sort of surprises me a little bit. I was expecting something much lower. How quickly did that ramp up? Did that surprise you that it would be that big a component of your sales? Um, I think that the reality is, is people still like to look, touch, feel product. So it doesn't surprise me that that human behavior, and I've read various stats. We hear about the death of retail all the time, the death of brick and mortar. (laughs) People are buying all their clothes online. So that's why I'm I'm slightly startled. Yeah. About 50% of people, depending on which study you read, say that they still want to go in and look, touch, and feel the product. Um, And I think what it does is for those 50%, you know, you need to deliver that service. But I think what is setting us apart is offering this added layer of experience on top that gives people a reason to get off their couch and go in there. So whether it's fit or the styling or just the human interaction, you've got to give people a reason to come. And I think those are the reasons that they still come. But traditional retailers aren't offering that. Um, In 2017, Walmart bought Bonobos for a little more than $300 million. What has changed and what hasn't changed since you got bought by Walmarts? So actually very little has changed. The way I describe it, and candidates often ask this now when they they come and they interview for a role, and I say our paychecks say Walmart, but not much else has changed. Um, When we were bought, the intention was to keep and preserve the brand, and that was and the magic and the DNA of the brand. So the belief was and is and certainly is my belief that we have to live it on the inside and it will show on the outside. So that means leaving the culture alone and that means like not tinkering with the product and not tinkering with the way we go to market either. So you keep that whole brand promise intact. So for the most part, nothing has changed. We have been able to leverage um, some of their capabilities around, you know, distribution and fulfillment, around credit card fees and things like that that come with the scale of Walmart. But anything that touches the customer, we've left alone and specifically made very active decisions to leave production exactly where it is so that we maintain the quality of the product as we see it. and that we can keep, as I said, the sort of the brand and the experience as it's always been. Why do you think Bonobos was appealing as a target for Walmart? What do you think Walmart saw in Bonobos that would make it a fit under their umbrella? I think it was about how do you build brands. So Walmart is obviously a massive, massive retailer that has done an incredibly job, good job of distributing brands, but haven't necessarily been able to build their own brands and have recognized that consumers buy brands. And if you look at things like they recently launched a brand called Modern, which is a home furnishing brand that will retail on Jet and Walmart and Hayneedle. And I think building that muscle of how you build brands was a large part of the appeal. And Andy Dunn, our founder, has done a really amazing job of building the Bonobos brand and is now actually responsible for building brands for Walmart 
like Bonobos, like ModCloth, uh, a more recent launch called All Swell, which is a mattress brand. And then we recently acquired a brand called Eloquy, which is a plus-size women's apparel brand. And so it's really that muscle and that DNA that came with Andy and came with Bonobos of how you build brands. Walmart has a pretty strong brand image of its own. And, yep. and, and part of that image is that it, it, it's affordable. Maybe it's not luxurious, but yep. you'll save money. Does that image spill onto Bonobos? Does it color the Bonobos brand at all? For the most part, people don't know that we're owned by Walmart. So no. Um, and that is intentional, that we will continue to operate the brand independently of Walmart. And are you sold in Walmarts? We're not sold on Walmart.com or in the stores. And why is that? Because the, actually the customers are so different. So if you think about the customer who's going to Walmart, which we talk about busy families and who are looking to sort of save time or money, that is not the Bonobos demographic. The Bonobos demographic is very much the guy himself um, and people who are prepared to actually spend more money for higher quality. So they're just not the same customer demographic. I read another interview with you where you said that it, maybe at one point the Bonobos brand had gotten a bit broy. I'm, I'm, I'm broy, and I'm using my fingers <laughs> to make quotes. air quotes. Yeah. Yes. What did you mean by broy, and was that something that that you didn't want to be the focus of the Bonobos brand? By broy, I guess I meant a little frat house, um, and I'm not sure I even know what that means as a British person living in the U.S. But that sort of, you know. Um, somewhat maybe misogynistic, heavy drinking, kind of um, traditional sort of college culture. And for me, that wasn't going to be how we could continue to scale the brand. It also didn't feel really very modern or where kind of culture and where men were progressing towards either. And so for me, it felt a little sort of locked in the past as opposed to the brand evolving with the evolution in society and, and culture. Mm -hmm. um, I've also seen you mention before that you felt that Bonobos might have had a bit of a lackluster social media presence yes. in the past. What was lacking uh, in its social media presence and how do you go about turning that around? It was lacking a purpose for its social. Um, it was posting pictures of clothes, which we still do, um, but it didn't, there was no reason to follow. Now, as we start to build this brand belief around the evolution of masculinity and fit for every man, it can be a place, I hope, and I don't think we're there yet, but I think it can become a place where men come to find people that they want to hear the stories about or advice or inspiration, any of those things around what it means to be a man today. It's a journey. That doesn't happen overnight. Um, but I think that's the direction that we're heading in. And I think it was lackluster because it didn't have a purpose. And that's in part because we hadn't actually articulated the brand's purpose back then. Now we're very clear that it's fit for every man, that we're creating a world where we all fit. And so with a purpose comes, it becomes easy to say, what should we be talking about and how should we be sort of helping and guiding our audience? Uh, are there other brands in, in menswear or not in menswear that, that, that you sort of envy or admire their social media presences? I mean, I look at brands that have got big numbers and I'm a bit jealous. <laughs> Is there like any... who? You can name names. I can name names. I mean, Chubby's has a ton of followers. Um, I don't think I even know what that is. What's oh, that? Chubby's <laughs> is a menswear brand. Okay. Uh, they specialize in very short shorts. Okay. Um, and 
lots of bright colors and things like that. They have a ton of followers. I don't think their content is what I would aspire to have, but I admire them for what they have built for their brand. Have I found or seen a brand who's using social in the way that I aspire to? Not in menswear. The closest parallel I've seen is actually Dove. Um, and I think they have done an amazing job across all channels, social and branded content, of really bringing their sort of brand purpose of real beauty to life through really interesting activations and content. So I look at them with more um, desirous eyes from a kind of what they've managed to use social to do as opposed to just their pure engagement numbers. They've done a bunch of advertisements and short films and things that have kind of driven conversation, really become part of the cultural conversation. And that's what I want for us. Yeah. Um, Is it harder to do that in, in, with, with a men's brand than with a women's brand? I'm trying, I, you know, it seems like they, there are sort of these natural ways to talk about women's empowerment and changing things for women that might be different to talk about with men. It's definitely different. I don't know if it's harder. I just think it hasn't been done before as much. So it's harder when you're creating the playbook um, than if you're following a playbook. But I don't know if it's harder in absolute terms. And personally speaking, you know, as a CEO turned marketer, marketer turned CEO, I find that more exciting is creating the playbook. You have recently announced that you are partnering with the the golfer Justin Rose and you're you're doing this line of golf apparel. Um, And so my question is, why get into sports apparel and why use a celebrity athlete as an endorser? What are some of the the opportunities about that and some of the risks about doing something like that? Have you done anything like that before? We've never done anything on this scale before. Um, And we've had golf for some time. Um, But this year is a year that we're really investing in it. And sort of why are we investing in golf? couple of reasons. One, we think it's an interesting new way to bring a different customer into the brand. We see a lot of crossover between people who buy golf and then go on to buy, you know, pants and suits and shirts and ties and whatever. So from a customer acquisition point of view, it's just interesting new customer to bring into the brand. We think that golf has evolved and you're seeing a different guy on the course now and it's becoming a increasingly younger sport and a more diverse sport. And so we think that's sort of an interesting shift in the sport that we would like to be part of. And then I think for us specifically, and why should we take advantage of it? You know, if you think about our fit value proposition, one of the places that you want fit to really work well for you and with you is the golf course, because you want to look good on the golf course, but it has to be performant. It has to work with your swing. I'm not a golfer, but it has to work with your game. And so that's really interesting for us. And we're also seeing this trend where men are wanting to be more stylish on the golf course and they don't want it all to be khaki and navy blue. And with our forte and print and color, we're seeing this really interesting opportunity to not just bring fit, but style to the golf course for this newer kind of golfer that's emerging. And Justin, and why Justin, he loves the brand. He came to us. Um, He really loves the brand. He loves the fit, and he loves the joy in the product. So it just became a really interesting and natural partnership that as he looked to change up um, who was dressing him, he wanted somebody that could offer him that performance without sacrificing style. He also wanted a brand that wasn't just about what he wore on the course, but actually what he wore to any other kind of you know event or engagement that he had. And so we actually dressed him, his whole wardrobe. 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more from Mickey Onverall, CEO of Bonobos. Okay, I want to ask uh, a few questions about you. Okay. You became CEO of Bonobos in, in September of 2018, and you took over from one of the co-founders, right? Is there yes. is there sort of a special challenge when you're taking over from a founder? I think what's unusual in this situation is one you're taking over from a founder and it's the person that birthed the brand and it's it's their baby. Um when you're taking on the the role of CEO from a founder, you have to respect the past. You also have to be given the freedom to take it to the next level. And so what I have found with Andy is he is um, incredibly supportive of us evolving the brand and the business as we see fit sort of going forwards. It's also an unusual situation because he's still around. He's still my boss. So he's responsible for a portfolio of brands now. And so he's still around for me to, you know, pick his brains, ask about the past. And that's pretty unusual situation because Often when you come in um, as a CEO to replace someone, that person has left to go on to their next opportunity and you don't have that ability to sort of tap tap them on the shoulder. I guess the flip side of that is they, they can look over your shoulder, right? And it's their, it's their baby and you're running yep. it. And is there any concern that he's, you know, might take more of an interest in how you're running it than, than someone who hadn't been a founder might? I think that Andy and I, you know, I was there for two years before I became the CEO almost. And so we had just built up such a strong rapport and trust that I have never felt like that. And I think it was the right time. It You know, it was almost 11 years in and it was time for him to, you know, hand the baton over to somebody else. I think he felt ready. We had built, as I said, a strong relationship. He trusted me. And so very luckily, I feel empowered I have the just the right level of being able to, you know, ask his advice, but actually feel like I'm free to run the business. So you came into this CEO role from the marketing side. You were the yes. CMO, the chief marketing officer. Um, do you have a sense of how common that is to come from being CMO as opposed to being, you know, the CFO or the CTO or any other of the C-suite executives? How often does the CEO come from the marketing side? I think not very often. Um, certainly, I haven't met any others yet. Um, I've heard of a couple. Um, I wonder whether it's going to be an emerging trend. And here's why I feel like it might be, is that if you think about the rise of the consumer in brands and businesses and the importance that every business is talking about, how do they put the consumer front and center of the organization? And a marketer, in theory, should be really good at that. Their whole career has been about how do you think about the consumer and changing their behavior and convincing them to do X, Y, and Z. So I think there's a very natural synergy with marketers with this sort of rise of the consumer. I think the other reason I think it might be an emerging trend is that particularly in the consumer and the direct-to-consumer space, CEOs are realizing ever more the importance of brand and that brand is has this intrinsic value to consumers. And who is the guardian of the brand very often? Well, if it's not the founder or the CEO, it's the CMO or the marketer. So I think there's this very natural evolution from CMO as sort of guardian of the brand and the customer to CEO as guardian of the the brand and the customer. And I would be really excited, obviously, to see it be an emerging trend. 
Yeah, so those are there are some of the advantages of coming from the marketing side, which I, I yes. totally get. What about some of the maybe the lacunae? Am I pronouncing that right? The lacunas? <laughs> the, what are some of the things that maybe you didn't have coming from marketing yeah. background that you, you needed to shore up? Or did you mm-hmm. have things that you needed to shore up? And how did you go about shoring them up? I come from a really untraditional background to be the CEO of a menswear brand full stop. I have never done menswear before. I've never done retail before when I joined Bonobos. So I think there was a ton to learn, not just about being a CEO, but a ton to learn about the industry. So for my first two years, it really was about being a student of the industry and of this customer and how are clothes even made and how do they get to the customer and, you know, what does a fulfillment center and what makes one fulfillment center better over another? It really has been about being um, a student of the business and the industry, learning from my peers whilst I was being CMO, while still trying to be what I call intelligently naive. So this is, you know, I have a brain. Um, And so how can I ask questions that come from the perspective of the consumer, um, smart questions, hopefully, that bring a fresh perspective to the business? And I am trying, even as I get more and more entrenched as the CEO who understands the industry, understand how clothes are made and how they get to the consumer, keep that freshness of perspective that comes from this thing that I call intelligent naivety so that we don't ever lose sight of the customer. Because it's very often you hear in businesses, we can't do that. It's not the way it's done in the industry. And I think it's important to always challenge yourself to say, well, why? Why not? And so I hope I keep that while still obviously having to continue to learn um, about this business um, through my peers and through sort of industry peers as well. What's been the sort of the the hardest ongoing thing to educate yourself about? (laughs) Um, The hardest ongoing thing to educate myself about. These are going to end up being like top of mind things right now, aren't they? Things, challenges that we're having. I mean, the thing that is still for me mind-blowing and challenging is if you're having a you have a product designed here then you have it you know manufactured in Vietnam or whatever it is and then you need to get it to an individual consumer's home in Oklahoma it's a very long journey and consumers want things high quality well-priced and fast and so for me I think the most fascinating thing that I have been learning about is that whole supply chain part of our business and how do we continue to evolve and innovate on it in order to deliver against that customer expectation of, you know, value for money, fast um, and sort of in season and, and on brand. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, what you were doing before you came into menswear and and in those things you were doing, what are some of the things that didn't change when you came to menswear the same and some of the things that are radically different (laughs) between those things and menswear? Yeah, so I started my career um, at L'Oreal working on hair colorants. Um, And then from L'Oreal, I went to Kellogg's where I did kids' cereals, uh, innovation in kids' cereals. So how do we create new cereals? which was fascinating. From there, I went to eBay. um, And then I did a couple of startups in Silicon Valley before I ended up um, at Trulia. um, And then most recently, obviously, at Bonobos. The common thread through them all is the consumer and being consumer facing and a deep passion for the consumer and serving their needs and their unmet needs in particular in unique and different ways. 
that was like the common thread. The common other common thread is thinking about the sort of total experience. So thinking about, you know, everything from the, the first touch with the brand through marketing all the way through to getting it delivered into your home or picking off the, the shelf in a supermarket. So that sort of obsession with the customer and the experience has always been with me. And I bring that into my job today. The biggest difference um, in terms of going into um, menswear has been that the changing customer audience is probably the biggest change. So if I think about all of the businesses I've worked at before, women have been the target audience. It's women who buy kids' cereals. It's women who are buying hair colors for their hair. It's women who are the primary shoppers for home, in my experience, at Trulia. So this biggest change has been, for me, is how do you convince men to change their behavior because they're creatures of habit. And so that has been sort of the most challenging and probably the thing that I'm sort of still learning and refining as we continue to want to grow is learning that part. And then there's all the functional aspects, as I mentioned before, around supply chain. But the one that I find the most fascinating on a personal level is this learning what makes men tick and how can you... Um, change their minds and change their behaviors. What are your findings so far about how to t make the male creature of habit someone who's willing to break try new things? Yeah. Women. <laughs> so you're still marketing to, still women. marketing to women. No, it's not just women. It's about all the people that influence them. So it is other men and those role models that I talked about. But women do play a really, really important part. Depending on the study you look at, about 40% of menswear is bought by women on behalf of men. Um, and then there's probably another, I don't know, 20 to 30% of women who are sort of behind the purchase. They're nudging the guy to say, you need a new pair of pants, or we're going to this event and you should look a bit better. Or, you know, a, a partner too. It's not necessarily just women, but it's the partner or whoever influences them on a personal level. So that has been the key. Um, on one side, and I'd say the other thing that I have learned is that it's very functional for men very often. I've got a wedding. My pants have got a hole in them. I've put on 10 pounds. So from a marketing perspective, it's been sort of interesting of how do you tap into those moments of need it's as well need, as the want. <laughs> it's like it's <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally. The want is actually often inspired by someone else wanting them to look different. <laughs> and the need is the sort of the functional need is inspired by the man himself. Uh, okay, I'm going to move on to okay. our lightning round questions. Go. Are you ready? You're ready. ready. I'm you ready. You said go. go before I even asked you if you were Sorry, ready. Sorry, I'm so uh, keen. Are there any books or movies that have sort of informed your management style, how you deal with people? I am more of a book reader than a movie watcher. So I'm going to go with um, a book called Strength Finder which I don't know if you're familiar with, which is this idea that we all have innate strengths and we should work with them as opposed to constantly trying to compensate for areas where we might not be so strong. Excellent. What is the one mistake you've made that you have learned the most from? Back in my days at L'Oreal, I was forecasting hair colorants on a spreadsheet. Um, and I made a mistake in said Excel spreadsheet and managed to forecast and have produced two years worth of black hair colorants that then proceeded to sit in a factory for more than two years. Um, the lesson learned was I realized my mistake and I went to go see the general manager that I was working for at the time and confessed my mistake, thinking she's going to kick me out of the building. And she just looked at me and she said, well, will you do it again? And I was like, 
no. And she said, fine, move on. And I learned from it as a manager. I learned to check my Excel spreadsheets, obviously. But I think the biggest lesson was as a manager that let people fail as long as they learn from it. I need to know, was the problem that it was two years of black, not blonde hair colorants, or that it was two years, not two months of black hair colorants? Both. Two years, because most people, the reason it was two years worth was because nobody really buys black hair colorant. Okay, I see. Um, Meetings. Are you pro or con? How do you do meetings at Bonobos? I am a con to meetings. Um, How do we do them at Bonobos? We probably still do too many. We're trying to simplify that right now. I'm religious about an agenda um, and making sure that they are not an hour just because they were put on the calendar for an hour. Okay. Last question. Go. If I fired you tomorrow and you could (laughs) never again work as an executive, as a marketer, any kind of retail, consumer facing, anything even remotely like what you've been doing with your career to date, what would you do instead? I'd be a chef. What kind of chef? Oh, I would be one of those chefs that goes to people's homes and curates, like, incredible dinner parties. Sounds fun. I hope I'm invited. Mickey Onverall, CEO of Bonobos, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Who Runs That is produced by Cameron Drews. TJ Raphael is the senior producer for Slate Podcasts. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director for Slate Podcasts. If you like us, please rate and review us in the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can email us at whorunsthat at slate.com. I'm Seth Stevenson. Thanks for listening.